I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse and managing partner of Powerhouse Ventures. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our climate-positive future a reality. Some experts are calling 2024 the make-or-break year for the voluntary and compliance carbon markets. The voluntary carbon market allows companies to voluntarily buy carbon offset credits to counter their emissions, while the compliance carbon market operates in accordance to government mandates and is usually aimed at energy-intensive emitters. These markets were rocked by a shaky 2023. Following a number of exposés, buyers spent less than ever on low-quality carbon credits and more on high-quality credits that have a verifiable and additional impact on the carbon cycle. As a clean energy or carbon removal project developer or supplier, certifying the climate impact of your project can be arduous. After establishing a project, developers typically turn to registries like Gold Standard and Vera. These registries oversee standards that the projects must meet in order to be certified and for carbon credits related to the project to be issued. The registries also hold a number of methodologies. Vera, for example, has 230 of them. Methodologies are the scientific processes for various categories of carbon projects like direct air capture, storage, and reforestation. During the certification process, a third party steps in to independently verify that the developer's project does what it says it does, meets the necessary standards, and does in fact have an impact on the carbon cycle. These third-party companies are called verifiers. There are a number of startups, including a couple recent What It Takes guests, that provide higher quality carbon removal credits to buyers that are willing to pay more to ensure credibility and value. But verifiers themselves are also playing an increasingly important role. Historically, the verification process has been cumbersome, time-intensive, and in some cases, even paper-intensive. To usher us into a new era of effective and impactful carbon markets, the verification process needs a major tech update and a serious credibility boost. The verification industry must be able to handle increasingly complicated projects and use data to guarantee the quality and impact of carbon projects. And that's exactly what this month's What It Takes guest, Marion Verla, co-founder and CEO of SustainCert, is doing. Our mission at SustainCert is to bring credibility to climate action through digital verification solutions. So verification is a must-have to ensure real climate impacts are happening on the ground. You wouldn't expect your child to mark their own exams, would you? I wouldn't. So you could really see the verification industry or verifiers as the credibility layer in the ecosystem. And currently, that credibility layer isn't fit for purpose. It's manual, people are still using spreadsheets, they're sending PDFs via emails to each other, people are being sent on the ground to collect data. When we have all the technology we need to do this much more effectively. At SustainCert, they're employing a novel approach to verifying the impact of projects on the carbon cycle. And it starts with building a digital platform where project developers and suppliers can enter, track, and adjust their projects in accordance with valuable data insights. And so at SustainCert, we're convinced that the verification industry is ready for disruption. 
Um, and we're convinced that digital verification is the only way we can offer high quality verification of climate impacts at the scale and speed we need. We operate in two markets, carbon markets being one of them. So as a carbon market verifier, uh, our job is to verify that projects on the ground that want to issue carbon credits are following the rules established by the standards. SustainCert also operates a Scope 3 emissions verification solution, Scope 3 emissions being emissions generated throughout a company's supply chain and product life cycle. Our second business line, the, the market is much less mature than for carbon. What I would say, though, is that we started working on Scope 3 since 2017, when I was still the CEO of the Gold Standard. Uh, we launched uh, what is still today called the Value Change Initiative, VCI. Um, and so with that initiative, we gathered uh, together the standard setter, so science-based target, gold standard, the greenhouse gas protocol also, the key corporates uh, in the food and agriculture sector, because this is where we started. And we worked together to really conceptualize the Scope 3 solution. In order to bring more high-quality credits to the market, speed up the verification process, and accurately verify and track value chain decarbonization, Machion and her team are turning to technology to make 2024 the year for effective and impactful carbon markets. I spoke to Marion about her journey from her childhood in the south of France to founding her first company in Cambodia after starting her career in finance to launching and leading a digital-first verification platform. Marion, you grew up in West Paris and as a kid moved to the south of France. What was it like growing up in West Paris and then southern France? And what were you like as a young kid? What were you into? Yeah, growing up in, in West Paris and south of France was a lot of fun. Uh, I was a very, I would say, lively and happy kid. Um, I remember uh, doing lots of sport, uh, playing a lot. And I was also reading quite a bit. And so in my early teens, I got into the fair trade movement. I wanted to understand how you could transform the economy. I was wondering about social and ecological impacts of uh, our economy growing so much. And uh, one book that really shaped my youth was reading The History of Fair Trade by Nico Rosen and Franz van der Hoof, who are the founders uh, of Max Avla and the fair trade movement. Uh, so there were some of those um, those highlights in my youth. How did you first get exposed to the fair trade move movement, especially as a kid? Do you remember? Was it your parents or school? At the library. Uh, there were so many mm. books available at the library um, and quite a few of them on the economic system. Uh, what were the limitations of growth and how uh, people were trying out alternative models. Uh, so it was really... Um, spending quite a bit of time reading and trying to understand the world. I also remember at some point I wrote to our president at the time, uh, Jacques Chirac, uh, asking him about the state of French forest. Um, and I was super surprised to get a response from him. I still have it. It's kind of a small book. The president of the country. Yeah. <laughs> of of yeah. course, he wasn't the one sending uh, and putting the, the mail in the post for me. But I got um, a little booklet. Uh, and that's when I learned that French forests at the time uh, were growing uh, and uh, in a good state. Yeah, sequestering a lot of carbon. <laughs> yeah. How old are you when you wrote to the president? Probably in my early teens, 10 or 12. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I know your mom was a full-time parent and instilled in you the importance of pursuing a career, and your dad was an entrepreneur in the automotive sector. Both of your parents expected you to get really good grades and to find a career that would make you financially independent. Tell me more about your parents and what you learned from them that has stuck with you. My parents uh, played a really important role, I would say, uh, in insight in uh, who I am today, and uh, and they both instilled in, in me and my sister very early on this importance of pursuing a career and as a woman being independent. I remember my mom telling me, you more than anyone else because you're a woman need to make sure uh, you'll be able to take care of yourself uh, once you're uh, an adult. And so that was a key, uh, a key mantra uh, for them. And so they pushed us to do, um, uh, to study as much as we could, always telling them, uh, telling us to aim high as high as we could, because uh, in their mind, it was really important to create opportunities for ourselves um, and create options so that we could choose later on what we really wanted to do. So they were really uh, strong supporters of us uh, studying and, uh, and becoming financially, economically independent. You mentioned your early interest in financial markets and and using markets as a force for good. And you decided to pursue a career in finance and you got your master's in European business from the French business school, EDHEC. While there in 2005, you spent nine months traveling the world, including visiting Cambodia. Tell me about your travels and what you learned. We spent uh, during that nine months trip a few weeks in Cambodia. It was a game changing moment for me. Uh, the entire trip and specifically our stay in Cambodia was um, was eye-opening in many, many ways. I think what was the most um, eye-opening and, and game-changing for me was to realize that entrepreneurship coupled with innovative market solutions uh, like carbon credits, carbon markets, uh, could really... Uh, in a very powerful way, redirect finance towards environmental protection and social justice, which were the two core issues that I uh, had at heart at the time and still have uh, deep at heart. And so we met so many entrepreneurs uh, that were using markets, using uh, profit-making business models to solve environmental and social issues. And when we arrived in Cambodia, we discovered that French NGO, who was a pioneer, it was back in 2005, a pioneer at entering and producing carbon credits to finance an improved cooking program that was changing the lives of thousands of people in Cambodia. So after graduating from EDHEC, you moved to London to start your career in finance at Barclays. And while there, you drafted the business plan for your first company, Nexus Carbon for Development, a fair trade carbon market intermediary. You then moved to Cambodia and lived in Asia for seven years, incubating, founding, and leading Nexus. And while at Nexus, you were introduced to the Gold Standard Foundation, and you left Nexus after five years to join the Gold Standard Foundation as its CEO. What is Nexus? is Carbon, what is the Gold Standard Foundation, and what did you learn from leading both? So Nexus really was my first entrepreneurial experience. It was an amazing journey because it combined uh, what I had learned, and I would say what I had discovered during my first trip to Cambodia in 2005. I discovered the power, the potential of carbon markets in driving finance to projects on the ground. Um, and I also had this teenage love for fair trade, uh, this belief that you could do trade 
in a different way, that you could use markets uh, and trade to create value for everyone in the chain, not only for a few. Uh, and so Nexus for Development, the vision of Nexus was to create a fair carbon market where the value would be more equitably distributed between the people on the ground that are driving change, that are reducing emissions, those that are supporting them, and then everyone else in the chain. Uh, at the time when I moved to Cambodia in 2009, we did a study a few uh, months after I joined that showed that more than half of the value of a carbon credit paid by the end buyer, that half of that value would go in the hands of intermediaries, more than half. So less than half would go to people on the ground actually driving climate impact. And at Nexus, we wanted to change that and have 80% of the value stay on the ground with people driving change and 20% in the hands of intermediaries. Hmm. Did you achieve that in your time at Nexus? No, for we didn't. We didn't. I was very <laughs> idealistic at the time. And so you were asking about the key learnings. I was so idealistic that we were... Um, very, very fair in our pricing to our clients who are also our partners. We weren't making sufficient margins. And so that's what I learned that if you want to build a sustainable business that has a lot of impact, you need uh, to be financially sustainable and you need to have good margins, good metrics and, uh, and manage your cost closely. So that was a really uh, eye-opening experience uh, in that regard. Yeah. Mm. I'm reminded of your parents' guidance of yeah. being financially independent. <laughs> exactly. yeah, that, that's key for companies as well, of course. Yeah, yeah. And then I moved to Gold Standard. I think after almost six years in Cambodia, our first daughter was born. When we were uh, in Cambodia, we wanted we were a bit um, uh, uh, missing home and wanted to get closer to to France. Uh, and so that's when, um, uh, more or less, at the same time that Gold Standard was looking for a new CEO. And I was already working very closely with the gold standard uh, and their former chief operating officer at the time, Lisa Rosen, because Nexus was a key partner of gold standard. We were uh, developing new programs together to accelerate the number of high impact projects that were using gold standard to issue their carbon credits. Uh, so I applied, got the role, we moved here uh, to Zurich, and then I spent five fabulous years uh, leading what I consider to be uh, the best uh, carbon market standard. Um, it's, a, it's a high innovation standard that has driven a lot of changes uh, since its creation back in 2005-2006, including a strong focus on sustainable development. So Gold Standard was the first standard to put so much emphasis on the need for projects to create impact beyond carbon and also include sustainable development. How much of that was from your leadership and your idealism, as you called it? Yeah, so it was there at the beginning. So when uh, uh, the, the first CEO started Gold Standard and when I joined, what we decided to do with the team was to re-energize that commitment to sustainable development. And we charted a new, uh, a new vision, a new strategy where uh, Gold Standard would elevate sustainable development to the same level of um, 
rigor as uh, climate impact. And so we launched a gold standard for the global goals, so a brand new standard where sustainable development was held to a much higher degree of, um, of rigor in anticipation of some of the critics that we saw, for example, last year in carbon markets. So really always uh, striving to raise the bar and uh, aim for higher quality carbon credits. Tell me a little bit about those critics and, and how Gold Standard responded. So to simplify, I think you can say that the carbon market is attacked on two fronts. One of the source of the critique is around the quality of the project. And the other source of the critique is on what corporates that are buying credits are doing. So one critique is on the quality of the supply and the other critique is on the quality of the demand. So on the supply side, if you look at the articles that were published last year, uh, particularly from The Guardian, most of the critique is focusing on one specific type of project, which is avoided deforestation. And gold standard never, ever uh, certified uh, avoided deforestation projects. Those projects are not eligible under the gold standard. Uh, because Gold Standard and its partners of NGOs right from the start could see that deforestation is highly complex and that is, it is um, an environmental issue that is very difficult to solve with projects only. You need regulations, you need host country engagement, you need uh, corporate to change their practices. It's so complex that it's very difficult to say that this project here is preventing deforestation and to prove that deforestation isn't only displaced, moved to another area. And so there are issues like that with avoided deforestation that make uh, project-based approaches really difficult. And on top of that, it's really hard to measure uh, precisely what would have been deforestation in the absence of the project. So for those reasons, quite a number of NGOs, including Gold Standard, always refused uh, that avoided deforestation be eligible in carbon markets. And so, for example, avoided deforestation projects were never eligible in the compliance market created by the Kyoto Protocol. It's the market that we call the CDM, the Clean Development Mechanism. So if you carve out those projects, other project types have some issues, but organizations like Gold Standard have been updating their methodology regularly. So every year, every 18 months, every two years, there's a new methodology with a higher bar as we learned how to do it better. Uh, so this continuous improvement process is good. It can be improved. It needs to be improved, uh, but it's already ongoing and it needs to be recognized. On the demand side critiques, I think a key challenge uh, that has been raised, and I think it's something that we need to continue to discuss, and it's great that we have uh, those critiques and those challenges because it forces market players to step up their game. The other critique is that by buying carbon credits, <coughs> corporates have an incentive to um, not reduce their own emissions because they can buy their way out by purchasing carbon credits. And in some cases, it's true. Uh, in some cases, corporates are buying carbon credits uh, because um, it's cheaper than reducing their emissions. But in most of the cases, it's not true. And actually, uh, a study was published that showed that corporates that are buying carbon credits are much, much more likely to have a science-based target and to be leaders in reducing their own emissions. 
And so we're starting to see those positive stories. But still, I do believe that the critics uh, are important. And on the demand side, the critics are pointed to the fact that we need to challenge our communications. Uh, because I do agree with the critics that talking about carbon neutrality uh, is confusing for consumers. Uh, because if you buy a carbon neutral plane ticket, you have this feeling that you can fly as much as you can afford uh, without having an impact on the climate. And we know that it's not true. There's only so much trees we can plant to sequester emissions. And so those trees that we will plant to sequester emissions should really only sequester emissions that we cannot avoid. Uh, because there's not, not enough land to plant trees and to sequester the emissions of all the flights that we could all afford. So we need to limit the number of flights that we take. And so this communication around carbon neutrality can be misleading because it gives us this feeling that we can continue to consume, fly, uh, use energy um, uh, uh, without any limit when it's not true. And so I support the critics that say that we need to change the communications and talk about um, climate contribution rather than carbon neutrality. So you could buy carbon credits and you should still buy carbon credits as a corporate uh, to take uh, responsibility for your uh, unavoidable and unabated emissions. But don't talk about carbon neutrality, talk about your climate finance contribution, your climate contribution, your contribution to a one and a half degree world. So after five years of leading the Gold Standard Foundation and like you said, ever increasing the the quality of the methodologies, you realized that the verification process needed a major tech upgrade. How did that realization lead to the creation of Sustain Cert? And how did you navigate that transition out of Gold Standard to launching the company? I would say that the vision for Sustain Cert already started uh, to take shape by King Cambodia. Because as a project developer and working with project developers, I could see firsthand how manual, tedious, um, and costly the process to issue carbon credits was. Um, we were literally exchanging data via Excel files, PDFs, emails, sometimes on phone calls. Um, and I was like, it's taking six months to go through the process. It should be faster than that. But at the time, in 2013, 2014, 2015, the market was really hitting a low. There were far fewer projects going through the pipeline because prices had crashed and transaction costs were really high. And so that's why our solution to keep the market going as gold standard was to launch gold standard for the global goals, the new standard that I was talking about earlier. Uh, but when we launched that new standard, we, Lisa and I, had that eye-opening moment where we were like, as a standard body, our incentive is to keep the bar as high as possible. We need to keep a high bar to keep the integrity high. But then project developers are t telling us that they can't keep up. The bar is too high. It's becoming too complex for them. And prices are so low that they can't really justify spending that much money to go for such a high bar anymore. And so we realized that we had to overcome that tension between high bar and high transaction costs and find a way to keep the high bar but significantly lower transaction cost and make that high bar accessible to as many project developers as possible. And that's when the vision and concept of SustainSet came about. We realized that we needed a for-profit company that wasn't a standard, 
uh, a for-profit company that was incentivized to keep the high bar, meet the high bar of the standard and make it accessible to as many project developers as possible through technology. Because it was obvious that the only way we could achieve that was by digitizing the process. Tell me more about that. How did you go about digitizing the process? Um, what what did those first you know six months or so of the company look like from a tech development standpoint? Yeah, it was it was difficult because where to start when the process involves so many steps, hundreds of pages of documents, so many different rules, regulations, circumstances. Um, I was really privileged to be working with Lisa Rosen on this. She uh, has so much experience. Uh, in this space. And so we decided to work with an external tech provider initially. We didn't have the cash and uh, the, the capital to create our own internal team. So we had to come up with some form of MVP that would demonstrate that it was feasible. And so that's when uh, Lisa uh, hired this external provider and worked on launching the first Sustainset app at the time. Um, which was our uh, first attempt at digitizing the process. And so it worked well. It was uh, also a big learning. We realized how difficult it was to onboard hundreds and hundreds of project developers that were used to calling us and sending us emails and tell them, no, everything's going to have to go through the platform now. So there was a big uh, behavior change um, program that had to be implemented, but that was really our focus during the first six months of Sustain Cert. On top of that, establishing basic sort of processes around finance and people and really staying focused on our clients, uh, growing the pool of clients and keeping them happy. And you had Gold Standard as your first customer, but I understand you were operating on a shoestring budget. Um, where did the initial capital come from? So when we launched SustainCert, we closed our seed round. Um, we raised about half a million, so not much. Uh, so as you said, we were operating on a shoestring, given the level of ambition we had at the time. Slightly less than half of that came from the WWF, the World Wildlife Fund, which is a well-known NGO. Uh, we were part of their impact venture program, and we won uh, the program at the end and were granted an equity stake from WWF. We also had a, an angel investor <clears throat> that had been supporting me for, for a number of months and advising me, and then a uh, more of a traditional investor uh, that was convinced about the future uh, of the verification and who was a, an impact-focused investor uh, looking to boost the number of um, solutions available in the market to scale uh, high-quality impact verification. So three key uh, uh, investors, I would say, yeah. And with that capital, you talked about developing the initial app and, and originally focused exclusively on verifying the climate impact of carbon projects. But not long after, you started developing a product for Scope 3 intervention verification, Scope 3 meaning the emissions that are the result of activities from assets not owned or controlled by the reporting organization, but that the organization indirectly effects in its value chain. Um, and Scope 3 emissions account for an average of 75% of a company's carbon footprint and can account for as much as 99% of emissions in certain industries. How did you go about developing that part of the offering, especially given how opaque Scope 3 supply chains are? Yeah, it's the, the Scope 3's um, key business line. So as you said, it's our second business line. The, the market is much less mature than for carbon. 
What I would say, though, is that we started working on Scope 3 since 2017, when I was still the CEO of the Gold Standard. Uh, we launched uh, what is still today called the Value Change Initiative, VCI. Um, and so with that initiative, we gathered uh, together the standard setter, so science-based target, gold standard, the greenhouse gas protocol also, the key corporates uh, in the food and agriculture sector, because this is where we started. And we worked together to really conceptualize the scope three solution. So a lot of the work initially wasn't really on the tech side. It was really focusing on what is the problem we're trying to solve here. Uh, and we identified three problems, the lack of clarity on accounting. How do you really account for those emissions, uh, given that supply chains are dynamic, uh, given that um, you don't have always all the data you need? Uh, how do you create incentives for corporates to invest in their suppliers? Because corporates that have the investment power, the capital, usually are not the ones uh, that are responsible for the emissions. It would be their suppliers. Um, and then the third problem we wanted to solve was how do you avoid some corporates from being free riders? Uh, because corporates share the same suppliers. So if you are decarbonizing your suppliers, but only buying 20% of their supply, whoever is buying the remaining 80% will benefit from a low-carbon good that they haven't really paid for, uh, caused to happen. And so once we had clarity on the issues, then we came up with the solution, published a white paper, and then started building the tech platform. Uh, so the tech platform only came after a few years because we realized it would be a significant endeavor and we wanted to get it right. Uh, so we invested quite a bit in the design principle. And now we have a solution that we're super proud of because it's a solution that leverages our verification capabilities for projects on the ground. Very similar to carbon projects, except that scope three projects would take place within the supply chain of a corporate. So most of them would be agriculture projects, for example. And then the downstream part of the platform creates impact units, which represent one ton of CO2 uh, that is being uh, avoided or sequestered in the value chain, and that corporates can share between themselves as they all buy and sell each other uh, goods in the same chain. Uh, and the platform makes it possible for corporates to claim those impacts in a way that's high credibility, high quality, in line with the greenhouse gas protocol requirements, uh, scope three standard. Uh, so it's a, it's a game-changing tool. Uh, and we were very proud that we were able to issue the first impact units last year uh, from uh, the cacao company Barricalbo. Uh, they issued the first impact units and they already uh, transferred some of those to their clients and are using SustainCert to really increase the credibility of their scope three claim and uh, unlock uh, additional investments to accelerate the decarbonization of the cacao value chain. Congratulations on that. I remember when that came out. Um, and how do, for those customers that, that work with you because they care about accuracy, how do you ensure the accuracy? So it's sometimes, to be completely honest, it can be painful because we've never encountered corporates that were, or clients that were ill-intentioned, never. Uh, but what we saw was uh, clients that aren't carbon quantification experts and are doing their best to estimate climate impact based on data they have available. And sometimes we have to tell them that the data is not sufficient. 
so for example, in the case of um, clients that plant trees in agriculture sites uh, to create shade, or to sequester carbon, um, uh, we had to establish that telling us that they have planted a certain number of trees is not sufficient uh, for us to estimate uh, carbon emissions uh, reliably. We need the survival rate. We need to know how many trees actually survived after a year, after two years, and we need precise data on the growth rate of the tree. Uh, and so we're pushing them to collect more data so that we can be more accurate uh, in the calculation. And so I think it's this tension between continuous improvement and uh, high bar that we are striving to strike uh, all the time. And given that high bar, as you were building SustainCert and thinking about the business model, you decided to charge project developers or suppliers a flat annual fee and then an additional fee for every project that the developers wanted to verify using the SustainCert platform, which this is common for, for verification platforms. Um, do you think that the pre-verification volumetric business model creates incentives where verifiers are motivated to do more verifications, which then creates pressure to issue the satisfactory verification so that customers keep coming back? And is there a world in which buyers could pay you for the verification rather than developers or suppliers? You're asking whether our fee model creates some form of conflict of interest. So are we still independent when we uh, tell our clients that they meet or don't meet uh, the rules uh, that they should be um, meeting. Um, I don't think our fees are creating any conflict of interest um, for a number of reasons, primarily and, and to remain simple and high level, um, we are ourselves uh, an accredited entity. So we are accredited by the American National um, Standards Institute, or it's also called the American National um, Accreditation Board. And so we have a number of processes that we need to meet, a number of requirements that we need to meet, and we are being audited at least every year, if not more often. Uh, and so part of the assessment and scrutiny is, and something that we're monitoring on an ongoing basis, is that we are independent. Uh, and so we cannot do uh, uh, too much turnover with one single client, for example. Uh, so there are a number of safeguards in place to make sure that our fees don't create a conflict of interest. Um, and also the other reason that I think is quite good to, to have in mind is that we are paid before we make the final decision. <laughs> so there's also a requirement that our fees would be upfront. Uh, and we would be paid before uh, the final report is issued. So this means that us being paid doesn't depend on the outcome of our decision. And I would also add that we cannot be paid, we cannot charge based on the number of carbon credits that will be issued. So that's really important. And so this is something that our accreditation body will check regularly, that our fee structure is linked to the complexity of the project and the amount of work that uh, it takes for us to verify, but we cannot charge per credit that we issue. And you are, sorry, Emily, you were asking me if buyers should be paying us, yeah? Yeah, it's, it's a question I had before. I don't think it's practical. I don't think in practice you could have that because buyers don't, don't pay for the entire offsets that are issued by a project, right? And they like having portfolios of projects. 
Um, so how would you organize that? Um, it would be very complex, I think, um, operationally. And I'm not sure that buyers have an incentive necessarily, uh, or not all of them, They're not incentivized for uh, verification to be uh, high bar and high scrutiny. What they want, they want their carbon credits really fast uh, and they want carbon credits to be cheap. Uh, and that isn't really compatible with a very rigorous and high quality process. So I'm not sure that shifting uh, the cost and the fee to the buyer would necessarily uh, create more uh, virtuous incentive in the in the market and that wouldn't be necessarily very operational either as a verifier sustain cert ensures suppliers and project developers meet the methodologies approved by registries like gold standard for determining carbon impact as you were building sustain cert's product did you ever have the feeling that the methodologies or standards weren't stringent enough or responsive enough to changing earth science? And how did you approach yeah, it's, that? It's a very interesting question. When do you start updating a methodology? When uh, do you realize that a methodology needs to be improved? Um, I think every case is different. Uh, but, but yes, there were times uh, where we realized that some of the requirements needing, uh, needed updating. Um, and that's when we would provide the feedback uh, to the standard. Um, standards, especially gold standard, have very transparent processes uh, to provide feedback, uh, to submit claims and grievances as well. Uh, so, so we are uh, using our, our expertise, our knowledge, the information we get from verifying those projects to help standards improve uh, their requirements. Yes. How receptive are they? Usually they are pretty receptive. I think uh, standards bodies in the voluntary carbon market remain. I would say uh, most of them are NGOs, if not all of them. Uh, it's been a couple of years now that they have more resources uh, with the market going up. Uh, so they have been able to hire staff. Um, but a few years ago, it wasn't necessarily the case. And standards um, uh, operating with limiting, limited resources couldn't necessarily tackle all priorities and update all methodologies together. Uh, so there's still some backlog, I would say, some methodologies that are still in the process of being updated, uh, some delays. But I would say, generally, generally speaking, it's moving in the right direction. And we saw in 2023 from both Gold Standard and VERA, a lot of progress on methodologies update. Gold Standard has released a new methodology for cookstove that enables digital monitoring for cookstove. VERA is updating some of their key methodologies for avoided deforestation. So we've seen a lot of movement recently. So the pace uh, is going up, which is great. You mentioned voluntary carbon markets. As you've built SustainCert, have your thoughts on voluntary markets versus compliance markets changed? And could you define those two? Yeah, I was. Um, I had high hopes about a future compliance market going live in 2024. But after COP28, uh, my hopes have, uh, I would say, gone down a little bit. Mm. What was supposed to happen and what didn't happen? We were hoping that at COP28, uh, countries would agree on some final, really final, final rules for the new Paris Agreement uh, compliance carbon market, what we call the Article 6 uh, 
carbon market, which is the carbon market governed by the Paris Agreement, the successor of the carbon market governed by the Kyoto Protocol, which we call the Clean Development Mechanism or CDM. So we were hoping that the final rules would be agreed so that we could have the first units issued in uh, 2024. And unfortunately, there wasn't agreement. Um, but I had the opportunity of touching base with the new NFCCC Secretariat a couple of weeks ago, and they confirmed that there will still be a lot of activity. On the, on the Paris Article 6 uh, market in 2024. A lot of readiness work. Uh, and there's a number of projects from the CDM that are ready to transition into Article 6. As a verifier, we will be able to apply to become an Article 6 uh, verifier. So there's still a lot happening, but we won't see the first units issued uh, this year, which is a shame. And to respond to your other question, you could say that compliance carbon markets are markets where uh, regulations are defining the rules of the game. So in the case of the Article 6 market, it's all the countries that sign the Paris Agreement that agree on how this market will be governed. A voluntary market is a market where standards like gold standard or VERA would define the rules of the game and where corporates that are buying those credits are buying those credits because they want to do so voluntarily, not because they have to uh, meet uh, a compliance requirement. So that would be the, the distinction between voluntary and compliance market. And have your thoughts on the two changed since you started Sustain Cert? Yes, I mean, I'm not sure. Um, I still believe that the voluntary market is where innovations happen. Uh, because uh, you don't have to meet compliance requirements. You can go beyond or think outside the box. So I think that still holds true. What has changed, though, is that um, since we have a, a vacuum in the compliance market because the CDM is not really active and the new Paris Agreement carbon market isn't there yet, uh, we don't have right now a compliance market that serves as benchmark for the voluntary market. And so up until a few years ago, the voluntary carbon market would say, that's what the compliance market is doing. We will do more. So we will have a higher bar. So it was always the positioning of gold standard uh, to be a higher bar compared to the CDM, for example. Or we will do it differently, like Vera, who said, the CDM doesn't want avoided deforestation, we will do avoided deforestation, and these are the reasons why. So the voluntary carbon market could define its position vis-à-vis -vis the compliance market. But we had a vacuum for a number of years, and I think it's one of the reasons why the voluntary carbon market has been attacked so much. It's because there's no more compliance benchmark to refer to when you justify the decisions you've been taking. Yeah. Coming up, Marion shares what she's learned having raised $47 million for Sustained Cert. But first, a word from our sponsors. What It Takes is brought to you by Microsoft. In January of 2020, Microsoft announced a $1 billion climate innovation fund alongside an ambitious set of sustainability goals. Since then, the fund has been investing in innovative technologies that have the potential for meaningful, measurable climate impact by 2030. 
To date, Microsoft has allocated more than $700 million into a global portfolio of over 50 investments, including sustainable solutions in energy, industrial, and natural systems. They strive to be an impact-driven investor, buyer, and go-to-market partner to advance solutions along the commercialization curve and make them affordable and accessible for others. Microsoft's Climate Innovation Fund invested in LineVision, who uses AI and computational fluid dynamics to integrate local weather data and near real-time ground sensor measurements to provide a reliable hourly rating of the current carrying capacity of transmission lines. This dynamic line rating allows transmission owners to unlock additional carrying capacity from their existing infrastructure compared to traditional static line ratings and bring additional renewable energy onto the grid. What It Takes is also brought to you by Shell Ventures. Are you ready to scale your work in the energy transition? With a dedicated $1.4 billion climate tech fund, Shell Ventures is partnering with innovative companies to build a lower carbon energy future. From renewable energy solutions to next-gen mobility and carbon abatement and removal, their portfolio of investments includes some of the most promising companies at the forefront of the energy transition. Portfolio companies like Palmetto, who have built a clean energy marketplace, making it easier and more affordable for customers to decarbonize their home with rooftop solar and batteries. Portfolio companies like Flare, who are reducing homeowners' heating and cooling expenses and emissions while also improving comfort by combining smart vents, thermostats, and software. And companies like Kateri, who are working with regenerative ranchers across the United States to rotate their cattle more sustainably. Shell Ventures is more than capital. They specialize in unlocking deployment opportunities both inside and outside of Shell to help their portfolio companies scale, access customers, and commercialize their solutions. Visit shell.com forward slash ventures to learn more about how they can help your company reach the next level of growth. And now back to the show. So you're into your sixth year building SustainCert. You have raised $47 million, including a $37 million Series B, which closed in June of 2023. Who has financially backed you since the seed round? And what have you learned about fundraising that you think other founders should know? So we were very lucky to find um, super committed investors during our Series A. Uh, impact-focused investors that saw the gap in the market um, for digital verification solution. To be honest, that other investors weren't seeing at the time. When we closed our Series B, um, investors weren't really aware of what a verifier was doing in the climate space. And so it was really um, an uphill battle to explain and tell our story. And so what I've learned is a few things. I think... Choosing your investors well is super important because those are the people that you're going to be working with uh, very, very closely to grow your company. And having people and organizations around you that share your vision, your values, your working style um, and your commitment uh, is super, super important. Um, so I wouldn't underestimate the need to really have the right people around the table. And the second thing that I really learned is that a successful capital raise, at least at the start, um, is really about uh, telling your story in a way that's highly compelling and totally in line with the current perception uh, of the investors uh, in the market. Um, any investors who stand out that you'd want to highlight? 
all of our investors, uh, frankly, the Microsoft Climate uh, Investment Fund, who joined at the Series A with amazing Citizen Capital and Innovacom uh, based in Paris, uh, a deep, deep supporter of Sustained Cert on our board since our Series A. And then during the Series B, uh, they were joined. So all of them, all our Series A investors reinvested at the Series B. And at the Series B, we were backed by the new impact fund of Partech, which is a leading uh, B2B SaaS investment platform. Um, so, uh, yeah, I thank all of them for their trust. And they've all added uh, invaluable feedback uh, and support uh, to me and to the wider management team over the years. Yeah. We have a really strong working relationship. Just about every founder on what it takes has been within months, weeks, days, or even hours of closing their doors. How close has Sustained Cert come to closing your doors? Well, we I don't think we were ever uh, that close because as a CEO, I must say I'm a bit of a control freak. And so I, I have like a plan A, a plan <laughs> like B, most of us. a plan C, and then a plan D, and then a plan E. So I would say there were moments where I had to pull plan C and was uh, uh, considering uh, pulling up plan D, but there was always a plan. How long was runway when you pulled plan C? We still had a few months, yes. If you could go back in time about six years ago to when you were founding Sustained Cert, what advice would you give yourself? The advice I would give myself is to uh, start preparing for our Series A earlier almost straight after our seed round. Because when we started preparing for our Series A, I didn't have enough investor uh, connections. Uh, It took us um, almost six months to come up with a strong, robust plan. And so we lost a lot of time planning and building investor uh, connections that we could have started working on straight after the seed round. Uh, So that's what I would do, I think, as a... As a CEO, especially in an early stage company, you always need to think about your next round, how you're going to plan it and be sure uh, to be ready uh, early. Mm -hmm. Good advice, especially in this market. I'm wondering if you can speak to your experience as a white woman leading a climate tech company in an industry that is majority white and majority male. Things have changed. They're definitely getting better. Uh, But when I started, especially uh, at Nexus uh, in Cambodia in in 2009, 2010, um, I mean, you had to do double the work uh, or triple the work as a woman, young, uh, starting a company, trying to raise funds. I think now uh, things have changed. Uh, I see a lot more uh, female CEOs in the climate space. Um, I do see a lot less... uh, commentary on how do you do as a (laughs) female CEO with a family, right? You would never ask that question to a a man. I don't get that question too often now these days. Uh, But a few years ago, it was still the case. I would always get questions about uh, how would you do as a a woman and as a CEO. Uh, But now I think what I felt uh, happened over the last maybe 18 months or so is that uh, men would talk a lot more openly about how uh, they manage to do both, family and work life. And I enjoy that because I think we all share the same uh, work-life balance problems, whether you're a man or a woman. And so having that conversation, um, uh, I think is good. Yeah. 
to your point earlier, I ask all guests this question, um, and I think it's especially important to ask men this question because they are not frequently asked about it. Um, But I'm curious for you, what is it like being a partner and a parent and a CEO at the same time? Well, I like the fact that you're asking this question to all your guests and not only to, uh, to women. I think it's great. And I would say pretty simply, it's not easy to be a partner, a parent, a CEO, a founder, all at the same time. And it's, I think it's okay to acknowledge that uh, we're not perfect uh, and that um, every day we're getting better uh, at managing all those hats. I'm lucky to have a very strong supportive partner, a really strong social network um, and family network uh, that's helping me and helping us. So I feel really privileged. Um, And I think all of those responsibilities are super important to me. Uh, And um, I feel happy and blessed as a a mom, uh, as a wife uh, and as a CEO. And you were asking earlier about my experience as as a white woman in that space. I would say that one of my biggest achievements maybe is to have founded Sustainsert, a company that has people from more than 30 countries and a 50-50 gender balance. So we're so diverse as a company. I think it's, it's something that I'm extremely proud of uh, and that I think is key to, to our success and where we are today. Last question before we close with our high voltage round. What will the future of the verification industry look like a decade from now? And if Sustained Cert succeeds, what will the company look like in a decade? Well, in a decade, I would say verification is mandatory for any climate project. And the process is digitized uh, to support the scaling we so desperately need. Uh, to drive credible climate action and stay below uh, two degrees. All right. Our high voltage round, quick questions, very quick answers, meaning a couple of words. If you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? I would say a giraffe because they can see really uh, far. And did you know that a giraffe can kill a lion with with a kick of the foot? Wow. I did not know that. And I love the way you say giraffe. (laughs) What inspires you? My daughters. Mm. If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? I would uh, write books. I would be the new G.K. Rowling and uh, do a Harry Potter uh, about climate change and climate action. Ah, I love that. I love that. Other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? The team. It's all about the team. It's not me. It's the team. Mm. Tell me about a specific time that you have failed. Specific time that I failed. I, I mean, every day, every week you learn. I don't believe in, in failure. I think it's all about learning fast and uh, getting back on top of it and trying again until it works. Yeah, I think perseverance and ability to learn fast uh, are key attributes uh, of success. Uh, there's no failure. You always learn something. I'm, I'm such an optimist. I always see the positive side in everything. And there's always, always a positive side. Tell me about something you've learned recently. <laughs> so a recent learning for me was that being vulnerable in front of the team 
is so important and can have amazing positive impacts in terms of creating a psychologically safe working environment. And I felt always very shy uh, to be vulnerable with the wider team. Um, and, and I think that was, uh, that was a learning for me in the, in the recent months. What is the best investment you've ever made? Investment in my, uh, I would say, physical health and condition, keeping time uh, for me to exercise mm-hmm. and be physically healthy, mm-hmm. I think is absolutely critical uh, to be a, a good mom, a good partner and a good CEO. What is something that you thought was true that you no longer believe? I thought it wasn't the role of the CEO to spend much time on internal communications. And I realize it's not true. I think internal communications are super important, especially in times of change and need uh, CEO bandwidth. When are you your best self? In the morning, after I had a, a cup of green tea. What is your worst trait? Impatience. I'm super impatient. (laughs) Very common one for our guests. If you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? I would take control of all the uh, oil and gas companies. (laughs) (laughs) Bold. I love it. If there was just one person who was going to hear this podcast episode, who would you want it to be? Lisa Rosen, because it's also her story. Oh, that's beautiful. I'm sure. I'm sure she will. Finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because... Their key leaders don't learn fast enough. If you really knew me, you would know... That in my dreams, I am a uh, yoga teacher uh, that writes um, fantasies, novels... If the world knew me for one thing, it would be my passion to digitize the verification industry and make it scalable and high quality. I'm most proud of having stayed true uh, to my uh, vision, my dreams uh, of what can be possible, my willingness to change uh, this market and create solutions that no one thought about a few years ago and which now have become central to scaling climate action. And last question, to build a successful startup, what it takes is? Humility. Marianne, this has been such a wonderful conversation and thank you for your insightful answers. And I I feel so fortunate to know you better and to share your story with our listeners. Thank you for inviting me, Emily. It's been a, a great conversation. Marion Vela is the co-founder and CEO of SustainCert. Join us for new stories each month of founders who are building our climate-positive future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse and Powerhouse Ventures. Powerhouse is an innovation firm that works with leading corporations and investors to help them find, partner with, invest in, and acquire the most innovative startups in climate tech. 
Powerhouse Ventures backs entrepreneurs building the digital infrastructure for rapid decarbonization. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund. If this is the first time you're hearing the show, or if you have listened to it for years, you can support us by giving us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. We read and appreciate every review and read some of them on the show, including this one from 2020 Elaine, who said, what it takes is how to learn about clean tech and the people who have started a business to improve the planet and our lives on it always interesting and fast-paced. If you have a friend or colleague who you think might like this episode, please send them the link. I'm our executive editor. Isabel Lee is our researcher. Christopher McGovern is our producer. And Jessica Macklin does everything else to make this show possible. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes.